Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Being a rock star, people enable you to behave a certain way. You know, you can be a flake and and people accept it. They expect that. So I gave them exactly what they wanted for years and years. (laughs) But the thing about me is that I clean up well. This is Hello, Isaac, my podcast about the idea of success and how failure affects it. I'm Isaac Mizrahi. And in this episode, I talk to legendary musician and my personal inspiration, Belinda Carlisle. Hello, Isaac. It's Belinda. I can't wait to talk to you and and talk about music, mayhem, uh, family, spirituality, getting older, being on stage, and all sorts of stuff. I cannot wait. If I didn't know anything about the music that Belinda Carlisle has made throughout her life, I would still love her just for being this incredible American icon. She is the mother of the first all-female rock group. And then when you lay the music on top of it, and when you consider that so much of the music was kind of the background from my young adulthood and what that meant to me, you can maybe get a sense of how excited I am to speak to Belinda Carlisle. So here we go. Let's get into it. Belinda Carlisle, hi. Hi. 
Hi. I can't <laughs> believe how lucky we are to be talking to you today. I and feel very lucky. Are you kidding? Thank you for asking me. By the way, is Belinda Carlisle, that's like your real name, right? Yeah, it was, I was born Belinda Jo Carlisle. Belinda Jo. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Is that a Scottish something? What is no. Carlisle? Okay, my dad it was American Indian and half Irish. So... I'm a quarter American Indian. That's why I have these the cheekbones. Cheek My dad was Cherokee. It's an incredible, incredible stage name. And I feel like I might have chosen that name if it wasn't my real name. And to think that you are Belinda Joe Carlisle, that's pretty significant. Where are you from? I was born in Hollywood, believe it or not. And I was raised in Burbank, California, in Thousand Oaks, which is a suburb of LA, about 40 right. minutes outside of LA. So I'm a California girl, mm-hmm. born and raised. California was amazing back then in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, typical dysfunctional family. <laughs> and now you live in Mexico City and also right. like Bangkok. Is that right? Well, I've lived, we've lived in like eight different countries because we've just wanted to experience different cultures. So we were in France for like 24 years. We've been in England. We were in Thailand for seven years. And then we were in Thailand. And then when the pandemic happened, we were stuck for like a year and a half. We couldn't get out. My dad died. We hadn't seen our Uh. son. And we thought if we stay here, it could go on for another year and a half. Right. So we made a decision to leave. We had no idea where we were going to go. Mm-hmm. But we thought, okay, Mexico. That's a good and place. I know. And that was kind of always on the cards anyway, because I've grown up coming here, you know, with right. my family. So here we are. And we've been here for two years. You know, what's funny to me is you and the music that you've made all of right. these years, and even the music you're making now... Maybe because I'm a certain age and I associate it with a time in America or something. Right. I think of it as such an American thing. And here you are living everywhere but America. Yeah. And I wondered, how does that work itself out for you? Do you miss us? What do you think about it? Do you think of yourself as an American? I think, yeah. You can take the girl out of America, but you can't <laughs> take America out of the girl. So, yes, I am American. I still consider myself very American. Mm-hmm. I haven't lost my accent. I've been away since 94. We tried going back to America briefly, and I talk about this with my friends who are expats, that mm-hmm. it's like a curse almost. I mean, it's amazing, mm-hmm. but nowhere ever feels like home. This is pretty close, Mexico City. Right. I mean, for you, nowhere ever feels like home. No, you mean- it doesn't. After we were living in France, before we moved to Thailand, we thought maybe it's time to go home. Mm-hmm. So we went back to LA for like a year and a half, and it's like, no, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. <laughs> Why? So, I don't know. I'm so used to living in countries and different cultures. And to me, that's really exciting. And I see. It was just kind of boring. I'm sorry. Right. It was just boring. And I kind of like not being able to understand people because that would annoy me if I could probably. So, I mean, that's just the way we're used to living. And I don't miss America because I'm in America like yes. four or five times a year. Adjacent. To get You're my America fix. adjacent. Right. Yeah, I get my fix. Even from Thailand, I got my fix. So. so- You were born in L.A. Was it because of your closeness to the business or something that you kind of were attracted to the business? How did you start as a singer? I I grew up listening to California radio, 
And every summer I lay in front of the speakers from like 8 a.m. to like 5 p.m. at my best friend's house and her mother would come home from work and then it was finished. Every single day, every summer. I always fancied myself a singer, of course, like most people. And the only thing I wanted to do when I was a little girl is I wanted to see the world. So I wanted to be a travel agent. And then when The Runaways came out in the late 70s, I thought, that's a much better way to see the world is right. being in a band. Wow. So at that time, the punk rock scene started in LA and all over the world, actually. It was 1977. So I was one of the 50 kids in the early punk scene in LA, like 50 tops. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it exploded pretty quickly. But everybody, all the other kids were in bands and they were horrible. So it was like, well, we can be in a band to be horrible too. And I was in a couple of punk bands before the Go-Go's. I was in a band called The Germs and the drummer that never played because I got mononucleosis wow. and had to go back to my, my parents' house to recover. And then I was a singer in a band called Black Randy and the Metro Squad. But the great thing about the punk scene is that it wasn't like mandatory that you knew how to play an instrument or knew how to sing. I mean, I couldn't mm -hmm. sing. I thought I could. And then I heard a tape of our first gig and I was like, oh my God, I've got to go do something about this. Wow. But that was the beauty of punk rock. If it wasn't for that scene, the Go-Go's would never have happened. I am so shocked. I mean, I know that your roots are in punk rock, but I don't necessarily think of the Go-Go's or you as like a punk person. I think of you as more like new wave. Right. And also not even so much new wave. Again, I go back to this classic American thing. Right. I don't think of you as fitting into a genre like that. Right. Well, First of all, I was born a contrarian. I mean, I'm still a punk rocker. I may not look like one, but I was born a punk rocker and, you know, found my tribe with the scene. And I mean, the Go-Go's came from the punk scene, but three of us grew up in Southern California and we're very influenced by the radio, you know, classic Americana with lots of harmonies, lots of melody. So that was in our DNA when we started the Go-Go's. So mm -hmm. as we became more musically proficient, because we had no idea how to do anything. And that was, like I said, the beauty of punk rock. So other bands gave us lessons on guitar. I went to the vocal coach. And then all of a sudden, when we started becoming more musically proficient, it emerged this sort of poppy sound. And now mm -hmm. the punks were like, oh, they're not a punk band. They're a pop band. They sold out. But that was our influence. Now, I want to go back for a minute because you're talking a lot about the formation of a band and what kind of motivated you, maybe politically or something. You're talking about a punk rock scene. But to me, you're such a good singer. Like you took singing lessons because you had to get better to be in a band or something. Whereas I think of you as a real singer. Well, I mean, I could carry a tune. Uh, but I remember Charlotte in one of our earliest rehearsals mm -hmm. said, you have a really unusual quality to your voice, if you could sing. <laughs> no, she didn't say she didn't say that, but I knew that I needed help because I was screaming, you know. And so from the very beginning, I, I was going to vocal coaches. When mm -hmm. I could afford it, I'd save my money and get my vocal lessons. So I guess I could carry a tune and I had a quality in my oh. voice that was unusual. What was the motivation in the creation of songs? If it wasn't a musical thing, I don't think of this music that you've made, even the newest music, as being really like punky or political or something. I think of it as good music. So yeah. what motivated you to do that? Well, 
every punk scene in all over the world was different. I mean, New York was kind of dark and junky. The UK was political. Detroit was very working class, kind of hardcore. LA, at that time, there was nothing to be political about. It was never political. Mm-hmm. It was a girls club. I remember Jane and I saying, we're going to be rich and famous one day. We're going to be <laughs> rock stars. Right. We had no idea how to do it. I probably was motivated that I didn't want to do the kind of work that I was doing, which was being a secretary at these big mm. corporations. But wow. it was just to make music because we could. And that scene enabled us to do that with no sort of experience. Well, this is mind-boggling to me. Like, this was really almost a practical thing. It's funny because I was, I guess I was really smart because I went to secretarial school and I learned shorthand and I learned how to type. So I figured mm-hmm. at that time... I could go in there, I could go into these jobs, they have to keep you for 90 days for the probation period. They can't fire you. I'd be fired like clockwork every 90 days. And I knew that. But that enabled me to pay my rent. All of our lives were just about making music because we loved it so much. Uh, I remember being at the photocopy Xerox machine and like Xeroxing mm -hmm. from my boss and just going, I know this is temporary. This is just temporary, right. you know, but you knew, we, yeah, we always knew. So how do you get ahead in the musical? Did you audition? Do you make a demo tape and send it? So who books you? What? How did that happen? We booked ourselves. There was no auditions. We were kids that knew each other vaguely in the scene. Mm-hmm. We needed someone to show us how to plug the guitars into the amplifier. <laughs> so oh, God, that is funny. We went to a show at the Starwood and Charlotte was Charlotte, the only musician in the God. band. So... We went backstage and said, do you want to join our band? And she goes, yeah, okay. I was in my trash bag dress. So she joined and she showed us how to do things. So there was never any auditions. Everybody was pretty driven, I guess, to go from zero to 100 three years later when we were the biggest band in America. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Incredible, incredible. And obviously there was an element of fate and luck and timing, and it was meant to happen. So that was your big break, darling. I think when it changed is when we were asked to go to support Madness in 1980 in the UK. Madness, what's that? Remember Madness? No. That ska band, they were really cute guys. They were in suits. I remember. So they asked us to support them in the UK. And the strategy at that time before the age of information is that we could go there And send letters back home and call back home if we could afford it and say, we're big stars and nobody would know the difference. (sighs) So we sold everything we had. Our manager, she sold her car, jewelry to finance the trip. So we all went to London. We rented a house and we were there for about three or four months supporting all the ska bands and really sort of honing our skills as musicians. It was like a really very scary audience. It was National Front, lots of neo-Nazis. Pretty. Really frightening, but really toughened Mm -hmm. us up. When when you say you supported these people, you mean you did backup? No, we opened up for them. The Ah, Go-Go's opened for them on tour. And we tell everybody back home that we were big stars and (laughs) they didn't know better. And then at that time, Madness, the band, asked the record label as a favor to put We Got the Beat out, and the record label did not like us. So as a favor to the band, The Madness, they put a one-off single deal. We Got the Beat on Stiff Records. It was an import in the States, and it became like a minor dance hit. 
So when we came back from the UK and did our first show at the Starwood in LA, our strategy worked because I remember looking out and seeing tons of kids around the block and like, oh my God. And that's when everything sort of turned. I mean, before that, we were selling out clubs all over the country and record companies would tell us we can't sign you because you're all girls and there's not been a track record of an all-female band that's been big. I mean, there's been the Runaways and Fanny, but like on a mm-hmm. cult level. So when we came back from the UK, we just exploded. And then Miles Copeland, who managed the police and he had a little record label called IRS, he mm-hmm. signed us because we couldn't get a major label deal. And the rest is history. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have a question for you, which is about failure. Some kind of a setback that was a major, major disappointment, but something that taught you and helped you go further. Can you think of anything? Oh, them? I've had lots, lots <laughs> of them. But the one that comes to mind at that time is I think all that rejection, we never thought in terms of gender. So it was really annoying, you know, for quite a while. I mean, that was one of the many setbacks that I had in my career, but that made us tougher. That made us more determined. You mean you this know? reaction to girl band and how they yes. just wouldn't let it happen? No, right? they wouldn't let it happen. Well, I always wondered about this because it was such a new idea, you know? And if you were the Rolling Stones, darling, you'd still be together. You guys were together from like the late 70s to like, what, 89, maybe 90 or something. When did you girls disband? Well, we, we actually broke up in 84 after Jane left. And then right. there was right. a five-year break. And then actually right. Jane Fonda got us back together to do its environmental benefit in California. So Excuse that, me, tell me everything about that. All I, I know, it's so weird. It's so random, really, isn't it? I love, I love Jane Fonda. Did yeah. she call you and say like, hey, yeah. girl, Basically, really, yes. she did yes. that. Bless yes. her. But you get what I'm saying. It's like here you had this incredible thing that you created, right? This girl band that really did break the glass ceiling, right? And then somehow it didn't go further than like ten years or something. Right. And then of course you did the revival, as I remember, in the '90s or something, right? right? There was a right. revival, and you on your own. But you see where I'm going, right? Right. Well, we, we were really young. We only lasted actually from 78 to 84, six years. And it was right. like a whirlwind. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of things I would have done differently with that. Like we were on this treadmill and there's no way to handle that kind of success when right. you're that young. Right. So we disbanded, got back together. We worked for 30 years until last year actually was the last show. By the way, what are the other women doing? Are they still musicians? Yeah, I mean, everybody has their own thing going. Right. And, you know, the Go-Go's mm -hmm. are very, very complicated dynamics. Mm -hmm. You know, having five women that have oh, been working together, for, you, you wow. can imagine, right? <laughs> so, oh God. so, yes. It's complicated dynamics, but, but it's familial. It might not even colleagues, it's family. So, we cannot talk, you know, if someone could be pissed off at somebody else or whatever, different camps. And there's still love there. And mm -hmm. we kind of talk a little bit, but everybody's gone on their way. And it's weird now because the go-go's almost seems like a dream. It was like an amazing dream. Mm -hmm. I used to think about this all the time because, you know, I'm obsessed with you. I'm obsessed with <laughs> the go-go's. I think it's the one concert I ever went to in my whole life. I went to a Bette Midler concert. That's how gay I am. I went to see <laughs> Bette Midler, like, clams on a half shell or whatever the hell that I was. I saw that. That, I saw that was so tour. good, right? Amazing. And I saw you right, girls. Right. Anyway, the point is, here are these rock stars, but they're not 
men, they're women. You know, you think about men on the road and roadies and the bus. And did you ever troll for men? Yes, the same we did. You did! Yay! Hooray! We tried. <laughs> I remember that it was really hysterical. So we had the roadies go into the audience and go, you, <gasps> you, Come you. On. And then they came backstage and then we were so freaked out that we were hiding in our little inner sanctum and going, no, make them leave. Make them leave. <laughs> this is so amazing. We tried to behave like that. And we tried wrecking dressing rooms. And then we cleaned it up because we felt bad, you know? And, <laughs> that is you know, the greatest thing I ever heard. And, <laughs> and so we took advantage of the situation of being young, famous rock stars. On the road, Good for no you. responsibility. Beautiful. We did everything that the guys did, but I think we had more of a conscience, to be honest. Right. Yeah. Well, that's easy. I mean, that's easy, right? <laughs> yes, now, it is. I never read your memoir. Now I intend to because of all this <laughs> fascinating stuff. But I know it's called Lips Unsealed. Right, right. right. And in that book, you talk about drugs. Right? Right, right. You know, there are certain people you watch on stage and you go, I'm sorry, that uh, person yeah. is wasted. Yeah. Or if not, they should be. You know what I mean? You get right. that that's part of the culture. But with the Go-Go's, and especially you as a solo artist, right? I never got that from you. And it was a situation, right? I mean, it's an occupational hazard. Then being a rock star, people enable you to behave a certain way. You know, you can be a flake and people accept it. Right. They expect that. Right. So, I mean, I gave them exactly what they wanted for years and years. <laughs> but the thing about me is that I clean up well. So I could be up all night and put makeup on and like look semi-normal. might not mm -hmm. behave normal, but I was pretty much a drug addict from age 17 to 47. So wow. there was like that. a little break. Well, when I was pregnant, mm. I didn't take, didn't do anything. And then mm -hmm. a little break from 84 to like 88. Right. And with the Go-Go's, that was one of the big factors of breaking up. It was drugs, you know, ego, greed. So all the typical right. things that break up a rock band. But yeah, drugs are a big part of my life for years and years. I never did a lot of drugs. I was a party person, so I was on yeah. drugs sometimes. <laughs> but we had to work in fashion, darling. You have to be there like from the break of dawn till whatever. And so I never really got into it. You can't work like that. And I was always in therapy. My entire life I was in therapy. And I feel like that kind of counterbalanced the drugs. What do you think was at the root of your drug consumption? What was it that made you take drugs? Was it well, fun? Yeah, it was. I think that was probably it. The beginning was probably issues of self-sabotage. I remember when the Go-Go's album, Beauty and the Beat, went to number one, and I was on like a huge binge for days. And it was like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this, you know? And, 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 and um, right. I think that uh, was Belinda. probably the imposter syndrome mm -hmm. was at the root of all that in the beginning. And then after a while, and it, you know, it becomes, of course, an addiction. Yes. So you never think that you're going to be addicted. And at that time in the 80s, they didn't think that cocaine was addictive. Remember? I do. And I also remember when cocaine, I say this all the time, Belinda Carlisle, I say like a little cocaine in the 80s, darling. It was like a mm. Cole Porter song. I get no kick from, you know what I mean? And now God knows what it is. It's like crack cocaine or something where it's laced with a lot of shit. Mm. It's a different world, but it's yeah. true. It was almost considered healthful. It was. It didn't have that, it didn't <laughs> no, have that stigma yet. it did not. It's so funny. No. Speaking of like makeup and stuff, and I've texted you this and I mean it, you were always 
a babe. You were always so <laughs> cute, but you look better now. And I Aww. mean that. And I'm not sure what that's about. Is it like a bunch of work? Like what's going on with you, darling? Well, Tell me. Well, of course I do Botox like twice a year. Okay. But, <laughs> you know but, what I do is I do a ton of breath work every day. <laughs> Ah, like oxygenating the skin. Nice. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't eat meat. You know, I have a pretty healthy lifestyle, but I do think it's my breath work every day. And I do like a half an hour every day. But you know, like the French, they call it the gull, the face, like your right. face, darling. It's like you have a better face now. I'm not kidding. You look Garbo-esque now. You're gorgeous now. Before you were like cute, you know, right. like everybody wanted you to be so cute and you were. And let's talk about that for a minute, because when I look at your contemporaries, I feel like their physical kind of presence, what they looked like on stage, was a real construct. Like, you know, Blondie or Grace Jones or something. Right. They were art-directed creatures, you know? Right, right. Madonna, like she was an art-directed creature, and you weren't. You were just no. perfectly natural. Talk about that. What did you do to get ready to go on stage? I mean, that was part of the appeal, I think, with the Go-Go's and myself, is that we were just kind of real and normal. I've never put a lot of thought I'm planning into my career or my looks, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. For me, being on stage is just about comfort. And everything else is secondary. You know, I do my own makeup. One of my best friends does all my stage stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have that built in. But no one's ever controlled my image. Actually, after the Heaven on Earth album, there was a little bit of pressure to look a certain way because I photographed really well. So mm -hmm. keep your weight down. Oh, right. your hair is a little bit too red. And mm -hmm. that kind of messes you up, especially when I was in the Go-Go's. My name was mentioned with how much I weighed. Oh, so I was, gosh, I was right. pretty and plump. I was cute mm -hmm. and chubby. Later, I was felt. Got so it. that was the only real issue that I felt like I had to sort of keep together. But everything else, it was never art directed or anything or contrived. Speak to that for a minute. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, our incredible Tina Turner, right? She died right, and it was a yeah. tragedy. And I couldn't believe some of the obituaries, you know, yeah. the New York Times on the front page. I swear to God, the headline was something like the lady with the voice and the legs. And it was like, are you kidding? That's the headline that right. you choose to put on the cover of the New York Times right. in association with a woman who worked so hard, whereas men don't have to do that. They just get on stage and everybody thinks of them as like a sexy thing. Right. A woman has to fight for her kind of sexual identity. And I think you did a good job of that. Were you conscious of that, darling? No, not. Not, not at all. I was just myself the whole time as far as being sexy or being anything. I was just always myself. And I think that that was the appeal. I right. never, never thought in terms of that. Everybody else thought in terms of that. Right. But I think it's interesting now being an older singer, it's not slim and svelte or whatever anymore. It's Belinda Carlisle, 64. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. It's like Debbie Harry, Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. It's, the age is always next to the name. Right, so right, right, right. You have to work a lot harder, I think, if you're a woman in the business, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Are there things that are great about being a woman artist? What victories do you have that men don't get a chance to have? I never thought of that. Um, oh, gosh. Only because there are so many things that men just are given and women right. have to fight for and finally get. Is there anything a woman finds easier about show business than men 
or is there some kind of great thing that you love? You know, I can't think of anything, to be perfectly honest. Wow. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, it's like there should be some perk. I I honestly think that we have to work a little harder. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind doing that. That's been my whole life. But the perks, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. Well, forget about the business. One thing I always did think was a great perk about being a woman was being able to bear children. Like that is the greatest gift in the entire world. And you bore a very (laughs) wonderful kind of, who I met on a few occasions, James, James James Duke Duke Mason. What was that like? And when did you have him? I had him when I was 32. And I remember I wasn't feeling so good. And I took a pregnancy test. It was positive. I was like, oh no. Right. You know, because I'm the oldest of seven, mm-hmm. I had mixed feelings about having a child because I helped my mom raise my siblings. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of traumatic, even though I was really happy. At the same time, I was horrified. You know, I don't know how to do this, but I went on hiatus because I was really sick every single day and then had him when I was 32. Right. And then wow. it was like the best thing that's ever happened to me. You can be told about how it's the best thing until it happens to you, you don't really understand it. So I think that that kind of changed everything for me as far Mm -hmm. as priorities. It took me out of my head. Were you in a relationship at the time? My husband, we were married. We've been together for almost 40 years, but we were married. We've been together for five or six years. Mm -hmm. So So we were ready. So that made it a little bit easier? A lot easier, a lot easier. I mean, once I got over the shock of it, I was really excited, but it was shocking. You were saying that it's something that you don't understand until you actually do it. Like, what about it changed? Can you put it into words a little bit? It made life less about me. Here I am giving birth to a little person, and it's like, I want to make sure that they're okay. I want to do the best possible job I can do. It's like all these things that I never thought about. I was never really that maternal, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. But once I had him, it just snapped too. And I was actually maternal. But... It just makes you realize that life is a miracle and Mm -hmm. it just takes you out of your neurosis. You know, we made a conscious decision not to have kids because I am very selfish or something. I think I would be a very good parent. I think I'd be able to guide someone. But I don't know if I want to give up all of these freedoms that I have and all of this kind of self-centeredness, you know? That was my issue. That was why I was so horrified is that Everything has been about me for so many years, and all of a sudden, it's not going to be about me anymore. Hey, what do you mean? Somehow that becomes okay? Yeah, it does become okay. Like I said, I was shocked, and I was like, how is my life going to be? What am I going to do? How am I going to work? I had so many things spinning around in my head. Am I going to be a good mother? You know, Mm -hmm. like I said, I wasn't that maternal. Mm -hmm. I became maternal, but it it completely freaked me out. Mm -hmm. And yet you did such a good job because he's a real doll. He's a great human being. And my husband is a great dad. So I think the two of us were both kind of eccentric. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because I remember seeing Mm -hmm. Grace Slick on the Mike Douglas show. Mm -hmm. And she had her daughter with her. And she was like really out there and so eccentric. And the daughter was very laced up, very straight. And same with our son. He's very sort of normal. I used to take him to the punk store in Cannes and say, come on, Grandpa, <laughs> let's go buy some punk rock clothes. And he's like, no, you know, all buttoned up. But 
I think we both did a good job with him. You did one thing that I note about him that's different from you is he is political. That's what he does. He's like an advocate or something. Oh, he's like a political savant. He knows everything about everybody. Every president. He's been like that for ever since I can remember. Mm -hmm. He was reading the John Dean book, the Watergate book, at like age seven. Right, 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 right. (laughs) This is a tricky question to ask. I'll give you an example. My husband understands that my work comes first. (laughs) And he just knows that. And it's like the red shoes that never comes up where you have to choose between art and your lover. It just never comes up. And I think about my dogs and he knows. Like if I were in a burning (laughs) house and I had to save either him or the dogs, I would probably (laughs) save the dogs, which is a horrible thing to say, but it's the truth and he knows that. But what I want to ask you is you're an artist, you're a... Uh, mother, you're a woman, put that in order. Artist, woman, put that in order. I say wife, mother, artist. Wow. Yeah. Linda Carlisle, that's a yeah. beautiful thing. My husband's like the coolest. He grew up with show business all around him. So mm-hmm. there's never been any issue. He's always been so supportive. He knows how important my work is to me and it's my outlet. He realizes that. And he's just there in the background sort of supporting me, Mm -hmm. as probably your husband is too. Yeah. And when you were talking about this idea of imposter syndrome and you don't deserve it and whatever, we all go through that. And sometimes I think about my husband, Arnold, I go, what did I do to deserve that? How come I got this incredible person who thinks of me and supports me? Do you think about that with your husband? Yeah. I was like, you know, that whole thing was so weird when we met because... We moved in together after our first date. Mm-hmm. And everybody thought right. we were crazy, wow. but we just knew it. And we've been together for almost 40 years. And I mean, it's better than ever. So of course, if any relationship that goes on that long, you have ups and downs, but it's better than ever. So yeah, I always think about how lucky I am. I'm into gratitude every single morning when I get up and before I go to sleep. Right. Are you religious? I have a pretty strong spiritual foundation. I wouldn't call it religion, Mm -hmm. but I start every day out with a great teacher like an Eckhart Tolle or Sadhguru or Ramdas. I'm doing Mm -hmm. Course in Miracles right now, which is pretty hardcore, Mm -hmm. but I start every single day with that for at least a half an hour. I go into my practice, which is chanting. It's a yoga practice, but Uh, yeah, I have a big spiritual foundation that I never thought that I'd have in those early punk days. Speaking of spiritual, I find your new record quite kind of enlightened. It's like your brain opened up and suddenly you can see everything, you know? (laughs) And I really love it. And what I love so much about it is it really gives you the kind of Belinda Carlisle thing that you just die for. You know, sometimes artists, as they progress, they drop stuff, and you have, and we all have, but I think you managed to keep the Belinda Carlisle thing, like, fresh all this time. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I'm just saying I really Thank like you. the record. It's total accident. I wasn't going to do this. And then my boy ran into Diane Warren, and she said, let's call your mom. Warren. I know. She was an answer on Jeopardy recently. She did a bunch of answers on Jeopardy. (laughs) She is amazing. Diane Warren. So, yeah, I wasn't planning on doing any more recordings. So that's why it's called Kismet. It was a chance meeting between Diane and my son who called me, and she said, get to the studio. I have hits. And I was like, do I really want to do that? Because it's a big commitment, you know? But then I went to the studio, and I love Big Big Love and the other single. And then I thought, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I hadn't done an English-speaking pop album for 26 years. 
Wow, that's so. <laughs> so that's that's so why it's fresh. It's like, oh my god, this is totally unexpected. I love these songs, and I love singing this kind of music again. For me, it was fresh. And are you now committed to doing a giant tour? Is that going to happen to you? No, I won't do that. I think 64. You know, I'm going to be 65 in a few months. Wow. And I do it on my terms now. I know how to mm-hmm. say no. I can't slog it out anymore. I just did in the UK. I did 16 shows in right. 21 days, which was amazing mm-hmm. that I got through it with my voice and my body intact. This is right. a lot of physicality, yes, as you know. I know. So uh, I have East Coast and West Coast this summer. I have Australia at the end of the year. And then after that, I don't have any commitments or anything, mm-hmm. and we'll see. I mean, I don't know. But I you feel know? like you like performing because you do every venue. You do giant stadiums, and then you do, like, the Carlisle. Little clubs, yeah. Yeah. I, I do like performing. It's what goes along with it that I'm not crazy about, the traveling, you right. know, anymore. That's right. harder than getting on stage. So, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever totally retire and mm-hmm. I'll always work because I do love to sing. Do you get stage fright? Not really, no. Mm-hmm. I used to always go on stage a little bit tweaked, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. on something or a couple glasses of wine. And I was really horrified about, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go up there sober. But right. for me, it was like way easier because, as you know, I know it sounds really pretentious, but you're able to tap into something that's greater than yourself. And it's almost like channeling in a way. It's weird. And for me, being on stage is like meditation now. I just don't even think. I just wow. do. So wow. I don't get nervous. I just do my thing. And when I'm off stage, it doesn't feel like the same person. It's weird. Right. Well, I don't exactly understand how you do we it. do it. I get terrible stage fright and I am freaking, and like everything just goes black, like seriously black. I'm not kidding. You have some dark thoughts. And then <laughs> like an hour before the show or 15 minutes before the show, it starts to click in and then the nerves like somehow transfer and become excitement. And then, you know, that scene in that Judy Garland movie where she plays a singer in London and they catch her backstage. It's called, I think the movie's called I Could Go On Singing and she's backstage like she hears her music and she's clutching at the curtain and she's kicking her legs and she's so excited to go out. And then you're out there and it's like the most unbelievable, amazing thing in the world to be out on a stage, right? Yes. Yes. When it's going well. And then when it's not going well, it's absolute (laughs) hell. It's like being sucked into a vortex and everything kind of goes gooey and in slow motion. (laughs) And uh, Oh my God. So, I mean, thankfully that doesn't happen too often, but yeah. Do you feel like you're the same person when you're out there as like offstage? No, but I feel like I am like a bullion cube of myself or something. Like <laughs> I am so much myself that you could never live to that kind of extent offstage. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I have a few questions left. I have this one question, which I'm just going to come right out and ask you. Do you have any regrets? I think my only regret that I wasn't as present as I should have been as a mother, because I was really struggling with my own demons. And mm-hmm. also, one thing that I realized when I was writing the book, it was like therapy times 100, is that yeah. I remembered that D- Duke, my son, said to me, Mommy, why do you live at the airport? And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. you know. And that was kind of horrifying to me at the time. Wow. So my only regret is probably I wish I had been more present 
When I was at home, I did the best I could. My husband's amazing. I don't regret any of the drugs or anything else. Right. Linda Evangelista once said to me, you know, she used to like my clothes, aside from being in my shows all the time. And she used to pick out clothes and we'd say like, where should we send them? And she said, oh, darling, just send them to the Air France Concord Lounge and they'll find me. (laughs) That always resonated with me. It's like, wow. Did you like all of that traveling? Did you like being on the road a lot? Yes, I did. I did. did. Yeah, I liked it for a long time. I still like it. I like traveling with Morgan more. I don't like to be away from him, but I still do. I like room service. I like cushy beds. You know, I love all that. I love like laying in my big cushy bed and just getting room service. Well, no, you know, I love it. You know, I used to travel with all these executives from Target and they were like rich people, much richer than us. And they would say, oh my God, the bedding at the Peninsula Hotel. And I think if you <laughs> like the bedding, go and get the bedding. Right, right. No, I, I totally get that. Like, I like that part of it. When I'm not traveling for work, I'm still traveling for pleasure. I just got off a big weird trip to Turkey. But yeah, mm-hmm. I love the buzz of checking in and opening the door of the hotel room and going, oh, right. Do I like it? <laughs> what if it's a nightmare? Then what do you do? Oh Who my do you God, call? I stayed at the worst hotel I've ever stayed at in my entire life. Where was it? It was in Southeast. I mean, and I've traveled to India many times and I've stayed at dump. I've stayed at dumps, real mm-hmm. dumps. Right. But this was like beyond <laughs> dump. It was in a town, I call it Kaka, but it was called oh, Kata. And nice. I mean, I can do dumps. I know how to do dumps too. So I right. just like, okay, this is a dump. I know I just mm-hmm. adapt because I right. am a big traveler. Do you so, travel with your husband and James ever? Well, I travel with my husband on the road, but when I do these crazy trips, never with- I never would do it with my husband or I have a friend that I do all the crazy trips with. James sometimes, but he has work. And I used to take him with me when he was a baby. I took him to South Africa with me. I took him to Central Asia with me. But I thought it was more important to see the world than it was to go to school. And I was right. Mm -hmm. I thought, I don't care if you can add or subtract, but if you can read, you can speak, and you can spell, and you can write. And then I don't care if you go to school. I'm going to take you out of school. I'm going to show you the world. And that's what I did. That's a smart thing. And, you know, I thought so. By yeah. the way, this thing you were talking about earlier with James, how there may be a little regret that you didn't stay home more or something and be right. with your baby. From my observation of the two of you, I can see who you are and I can see who he is. And there isn't that gap that I think you probably felt with your parents. Like oh, there yeah. were probably things that you will never be able to resolve with your parents. Is that oh, true? Or, oh, tr- that's true. That's I true. Mean, Whereas I feel like you will give that opportunity to James to really resolve shit with you, you know? Oh, no, no. We talk about everything. I mean, everything. And we're a very, very close family. And we have a really close relationship mm-hmm. now, much closer than I ever had with my parents. But my parents were from a generation they never talked never expressed themselves, but we've always expressed ourselves even when he was in school. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wish I was home more and I miss out on a lot of stuff. Right. I see. I understand. But I think that that has its upside as well. You know, you have to be able to rationalize that. Okay. Here's my final question. Okay. Obituaries, because this is what I'm obsessed with. Every single morning, that's the first thing <laughs> I look at. Do you read the New York Times obituary oh, every day? yes, Every dear. day. Every day. And I've seen that movie, the obituary, the Times obituary movie. What do you want your obituary to say? What do you want the headline to be? And then what do you want it to say about you, Belinda? Oh, gosh. 
I mean, American singer, but I like to put the punk rock thing because I was born a contrarian. And that's wow. kind of what's got me through the years. But what I wanted to say, honestly, I was born without fear. I don't have that chip for whatever reason. I like to be mentioned as fearless, singer, against all odds. And I've done a lot of different things. So they mm -hmm. have to mention all of that too. Okay. Not just the singing. Right. So mother, wife, singer. Right. And fearless. fearless. and fearless and contrarian. This is amazing to me. I mean, I get it. You've said it so many times in the interview. I feel like it's really holds a lot of weight for you, but I don't think of you or the music or the go-go's or anything as I think of you as something completely else. Yeah, I guess doing what we were doing against all odds because there was nobody doing it. I mean, every, everybody in that band was a bit of a rebel. If you stayed here at the house for mm -hmm. like a week, you'd see it <laughs> because that's just the way it is. Right. I was born that way. <laughs> well, I love it. You've just been so great. Thank you so much. Oh my God, you're asking thank the best you, questions. Thank you, thank thank you. you so oh, much. Oh, you're the best. You're the best. How about Belinda Carlisle? I was so surprised by so many things she said. For me, the most surprising thing is that she thinks of herself as a contrarian. That was not the first thing I thought, you know, however many years ago when I discovered how much I loved her music. I never thought of her as a punk derivative artist. I always thought she was just this incredibly American kind of clean pop musician. But I guess there were other punk scenes besides the New York, London punk scene. And I think she really did get inspiration from that. So anyway, the whole thing was just so fabulous to sit and talk to someone I admire, to know in, someone who has really, really inspired me. Darlings, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and tell someone, tell a friend, tell your mother, tell your cousin, tell everyone you know, okay? And be sure to rate the show. I love rating stuff. Go on and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. It makes such a gigantic difference and like it takes a second. So go on and do it. And if you want more fun content, videos and posts of all kinds, follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Hello Isaac Podcast. This is Isaac Mizrahi. Thank you. I love you. And I never thought I'd say this, but goodbye, Isaac. Hello Isaac is produced by Imagine Audio, Awfully Nice, and I Am Entertainment for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Isaac Mizrahi. Hello, Isaac is produced by Robin Gelfenbein. The senior producers are Jesse Burton and John Asante. Executive produced by Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, and Nathan Clokey at Imagine Audio. Production management from Katie Hodges. Sound design and mixing by Cedric Wilson. Original music composed by Ben Walzer. A special thanks to Neil Phelps and Sarah Katanak at I Am Entertainment. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. 
Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.